Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Think you've heard enough about Calvin? Think again. This week, Scott Manich joins the crew to talk about John Calvin. We'll hear a more compassionate side of Calvin and how his teaching and example help pastors, seminary students, and lay people. Let's join the conversation to see what the gang and Scott Manich have to say. Well, welcome to the Mortification of Spin. It's a great pleasure to have as our guest today an old friend, uh, Professor Scott Manich. Scott is the Professor of Church History and the History of Christian Thought at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, which is just outside uh, Chicago and will be well known to many of you for the numerous great evangelical scholars it has produced over the years. And Scott is the author of It's actually one of the few really scholarly books that I still recommend as a pretty much a must purchase to candidates for the ministry coming through Westminster Theological Seminary. And that is his book, it came out through Oxford University Press, Calvin's Company of Pastors, which is a marvelous study of the pastoral practice and pastoral theory of Geneva, both during the time of Calvin and indeed for some decades uh, after Calvin's death. So welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Scott, I'd like to kick off by giving you a real, real softball. Why did you decide to study Calvin's approach to training of pastors and pastoral ministry in particular? He's, he's one of many reformers one could have chosen, but you decided for, for Calvin. Why is that? Well, there's a, a personal side to this story, and there's a professional side. Uh, personally, I grew up in a Reformed church, uh, where I saw pastoral ministry modeled in a very attractive, uh, very competent, uh, very biblical and insightful way. And uh, I think that gave me a kind of uh, sensitivity to uh, exploring historically uh, how Reformed Christians have viewed the pastoral office. Uh, professionally, uh, a number of years ago, I was working during the summer at the Meter Center on, on Calvin College's campus, and I was reading through the sermons of Theodore Beza and coming across this marvelous material as Beza reflected on the pastoral office, uh, as he reflected on the pastoral vocation, on preaching, and I thought, my goodness, this is a whole side of Beza, and in fact, it's a whole side of the Reformed tradition in 16th century Europe that really has been understudied. And uh, so that personal and that professional encounter uh, encouraged me to look, uh, look more closely at this subject. One thing that I thought of, and the book is excellent, by the way, as um, a pastor, I, the time I took reading it was challenging. It was also surprising in some ways, and that kind of leads to my, my question, which is, what might surprise people um, about Calvin, things that you saw, things that you learned, things that, uh, the, the ways that he um, interacted with uh, those that he was training? What, what might surprise people about Calvin, the man, the pastor? Well, a couple things come to mind. Uh, one, uh, the stereotype that Calvin was the dictator of Geneva or the, the Pope of Geneva is really laid to rest when you look at how Calvin ministered in Geneva along with, as, as a colleague with, a group of really 18 to 20 other men. Now, six to eight colleagues worked with him within the city walls of Geneva to minister to the three parish churches within the city. Uh, and then there were another roughly dozen rural parishes outside the city walls surrounding Geneva 
that the uh, company of pastors in Geneva were responsible for overseeing. And what I found very impressive and, and surprising was the degree to which Calvin constructed a pastoral office that emphasized collegiality and uh, accountability. And I think perhaps the other uh, uh, thought that comes to mind on, in this regard, uh, sometimes Calvin is caricatured as a brain on a stick. He's a, he's a theologian who uh, pontificates from the pulpit, uh, but is really dislocated or disconnected from people in his parish. Uh, and I was so very impressed how both Calvin but also his colleagues were involved not only in uh, rich preaching ministries, but were engaged in life-on-life, day-to-day ministries with people in their congregations. Uh, this was a kind of intensive pastoral care that involved not simply um, proclamation from the pulpit, but also uh, close uh, care and um, in- intentional relation building. Uh, through church discipline, to be sure, through catechesis, uh, through what we might call mentoring. In, in a host of ways, then, Calvin was involved in the lives of, of ordinary Christians within Geneva. So those are two thoughts that yeah. come to mind. Because it's interesting. I, I, I pastor a church, in a, a Presbyterian church in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, and there's a very strong Mennonite presence there historically. And so, you know, oftentimes you meet people, it, you know, it's kind of, it's John Calvin and Hitler just seeing who's going to cross the, the, the finish line first is the most evil uh, man. And, and these caricatures persist about him, about being this tyrant in, in Geneva. And, and, you know, I think some of it also has to do with historical ignorance about, you know, Geneva in the 16th century was a very different world, and people understood the relationship between church and state in a very different way at that time, did they not? Uh, That's certainly true. And what's interesting is, from Calvin's perspective, the real danger for the Genevan church uh, was that the city council would encroach upon the responsibilities of Christian pastors to do their work as pastors. And uh, Calvin's concern was pretty well justified, because when one looks at other Reformed cities, places like uh, Basel and Bern and Zurich, uh, these were city churches that really had come under the thumb of city magistrates. Uh, this is sometimes called Erastianism, where the city council governs the local church. And Calvin is very concerned that the, the gospel ministry in Geneva be unfettered uh, so that pastors can do their work without the interference of, uh, of city magistrates. And this becomes especially important in the area of church discipline. Uh, who ultimately has the right and responsibility in Geneva to uh, provide church discipline for those who are either um, uh, challenging the the orthodoxy within the city or living in ways that are unbecoming to Christ. And on this point, Calvin was adamant that the ministers really had the responsibility, the God-given responsibility, uh, to oversee church discipline within the city. Back to the um, stereotypical pictures that we have of Calvin being the brain on the stick, and I know I grew up in a, a very dispensational theology, and so just the name John Calvin was associated with false teaching and uh, frozen chosen and just very um, starchy, you know, mm-hmm. is what I would think about. And so it was so amazing for me to actually, I think it was a sermon of his that I read first in his writings, and then to to read, you know, his institutes or some of his commentaries and and see what he was actually writing and what he was actually teaching. So I would like to just ask, 
why why does it matter for the layperson to know John Calvin? Well, that's to know a, about him. That's and know a great his question, right? Uh, I, th- I think for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, Calvin is a man who is steeped in God's Word. Uh, he's a brilliant student of Scripture uh, who's trying to connect the world of the Bible with the world of 16th century Geneva. So he's, a, he's an exegete and he's a preacher who's vitally concerned about um, making that connection between God's timeless Word, God's infallible wor- Word, and the very real challenges, social challenges, interpersonal challenges that he's encountering within Geneva. Uh, there's a wonderful passage in one of Calvin's writings, one of the first things he wrote, actually, as a Protestant, uh, where he makes the comment, my only desire uh, is that the people of God should hear their God speak. And at the very heart of Calvin's sense of identity is this commitment to uh, proclaiming the word, whether it be from the pulpit or in his exegetical commentaries or through day-to-day ministry in Geneva, but to to make God's word available for God's people in a way that's um, faithful to Scripture, but also is uh, engaging real-life people in real-life circumstances. And so one of the reasons why I think modern Christians today could so benefit from Calvin, both for his enormously uh, prodigious uh, uh, biblical scholarship and his understanding of Scripture within a canonical perspective, uh, but also his desire to make those connections to where people are at, and in a sense to put legs on theology, to take ideas and to apply them to make them living and applicable to ordinary Christians here and now. That's such a good point, because I, th- I think a lot, even in the Reformed Church, a lot of lay people just do think of Calvin as the brain on the stick. So, you know, he might be good for my pastor to read, but um, not so important for, for me to read him directly. Maybe right. some quotes and some other books. You know, are there any books that you would recommend, or writings from Calvin, or even biographies on him oh, to introduce him? Places for the to, average layperson. For the to average layperson. With pictures for Todd. I mean, <laughs> with pictures. pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about the picture side of things. I'm not sure. <laughs> John Calvin, with... the graphic novel. <laughs> the graphic picture designer. might be the most intimidating yeah. thing of yeah. all, yeah. really. <laughs> Well, certainly Calvin's Institutes, yeah. and uh, and people should not be intimidated they, by that. They should yeah, not be. Uh, you know, I, I teach a course right now at Trinity where students are first ex- exposed to the theology of Aquinas, and they read uh, Aquinas's Summa Contra Gentiles, and then the very next week they read uh, an abridgment of Calvin's Institutes, and uh, the the differences in style and and in sh- in the shape of the work, in the feel of the work is dramatic. And one sees within the institutes the heart of a pastor. Uh, now, to be sure, the entire, the entire institutes is, is a remarkable work. But if you read in particular Book 3, where Calvin talks about the Christian life, uh, profoundly helpful for us as uh, men and women who seek to pray, who seek to understand our suffering in light of God's providence, uh, to say nothing of a very clear and I would claim, biblical presentation of God's sovereignty and election. Uh, another work that I often refer students to is uh, Calvin's Letter to Sadaletto, mm-hmm. which is a much shorter work. Uh, one could read it in about an hour or an hour and a half. But in this work, uh, Calvin uh, presents kind of signature reform themes, uh, the sovereignty of God, the authority of Scripture, justification by faith, even as Calvin is responding to 
um, this Catholic bishop, uh, Sadaletto. But what's also interesting in that piece is uh, Calvin, perhaps scholars debate this, but it appears that Calvin is being very um, self-reflective and even uh, volunteering a little bit about his own past and how he uh, wrestled with Catholicism and wrestled with Catholic theology before embracing evangelical Christianity and becoming a Protestant. Uh, so those would be two places I would begin. Uh, one, one other, uh, reading Calvin's sermons. Yeah, that's uh, what, I think my first exposure to him. And a, and a wonderful place to begin would be Elsie uh, Ann McKee's book, uh, uh, looking at uh, Calvin's spiritual theology, where there are a number of sermons published uh, recently by Paulist Press. So that would be a book that would gain uh, a reader easy access to that more devotional side of Calvin. Scott, one of the reasons Calvin has the reputation as being something of a, a stern dictator figure, of course, is that, that the things that speak loudest from history are the worst-case scenario examples of, of sort of discipline and theological crisis in Geneva. You think of Balzac, I think of Castellio, and perhaps supremely, of course, one thinks of Michael Servetus. Uh, and yet there was regular discipline done week by week within the Church of Geneva that must have been very routine and mundane, and often achieve precisely the kind of appropriate pastoral results that were desired. I wonder if, from your knowledge of the archives in Geneva, you can give us one or two examples of where those who don't know Calvin and just know of his reputation might have been surprised at perhaps at the pastoral sensitivity or the moderate approach he took to certain cases in Geneva. Yeah. Well, first, a little background. Uh, one of the institutions that Calvin established in uh, 1542 was the consistory. The consistory consisted of the city pastors, both within the city walls and in the surrounding communities, along with 12 lay elders. And the consistory met every Thursday morning. Uh, these meetings must have lasted an hour and a half or several hours a week, where they would deal with issues of uh, church discipline. Uh, a whole variety of cases. Uh, some had to deal with a wrong belief or ignorance Many, many more, however, did dealt with sinful behavior. It might include uh, child abuse or spousal abuse, uh, alcoholism, uh, disinterest in the pastor's sermons, uh, scandal. Uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, violent, violent behavior, blasphemy. Um, and what's remarkable is, uh, thanks to the... Uh, ready work of scribes. Scribes took minutes of these meetings, week in and week out. Uh, the, minute, the minutes of these meetings go on for thousands of pages in the Genevan archives, and they really give us a, a very, uh, very clear view of the underside of the Genevan Reformation. And what becomes clear is that in 16th century Geneva, there were a lot of sinner saints who sinned. There were a lot of sinner saints who struggled uh, to live out the gospel in ways that honored Christ. And there were many more who were either disinterested in the Protestant message uh, or who were struggling to live uh, the way God might want them to, to, to live. And so we have in Geneva this, this remarkable treasure trove of documents describing how the uh, Calvin and the other pastors, along with the elders together, uh, attempted uh, through these weekly encounters to help God's people live as God's people. Uh, and it was messy. Uh, some, some horrifying stories. Uh, 
uh, of abuse, horrifying stories of uh, neglect, horrifying stories of families in crisis. But what was so impressive to me as I read through these materials is here we have pastors and elders who are really descending into the real-life worlds of their parishioners uh, with all of the sin and all the brokenness and all of the tragedy uh, with an eye toward bringing about spiritual reconciliation, uh, reconciliation person to person, but also repentance, uh, forgiveness, and uh, spiritual renewal. Uh, there are lots of stories. Again, many of the stories are, are horrifying, uh, but invariably the pastors are, are seeking uh, to provide spiritual help. Uh, when we think of church discipline in Geneva, sometimes we think just of excommunication or suspension from the Lord's Supper. But in point of fact, Calvin's view, view of church discipline is much broader uh, he connects it with the power of the keys in Matthew's gospel. And pastors, when they proclaim the gospel, are using the keys. Uh, when they warn of judgment against those who are uh, unrepentant in sin, uh, they're using the power of the keys. And so church discipline in Geneva includes uh, pastoral counsel, uh, ad hoc conversations between a pastor and a parishioner. It involves when people come to the consistory and perhaps are rebuked or warned. And in the worst case scenario, it involves someone being suspended from the Lord's Supper. Uh, I can think of many, many cases where uh, the pastors are, are doing uh, godly pastoral work in difficult circumstances. Just a couple of uh, examples. Uh, cases where uh, folks are brought before the consistory who are so fundamentally ignorant of the Christian religion that they can't even name the three persons of the Trinity. And on a number of occasions, uh, the consistory will assign a pastor to meet regularly with the, the ignorant parishioner until they can um, recite their catechism, until they have a reason uh, for their faith, uh, and they can uh, articulate what it means to be a Christian. There are many cases, uh, cases of spousal abuse, where Calvin and his colleagues, after calling in witness after witness to determine the exact details of the story, uh, will pull uh, an abusive husband aside and warn them, you must never touch your wife again, or we'll bring you before the consistory and ultimately send you the magistrates uh, for corporal punishment. Um, I can think of another instance. This occurred a little bit after Calvin's uh, lifetime but where a, uh, an infant baby, an abandoned baby, was found uh, in a countryside village outside of Geneva. And the ministers will go to great lengths to try to find the biological parents of this child. Um, another case, again, a little after Calvin's lifetime, uh, where a, a young girl who's 10 or 12 years old, who's being abused by her aunt, and the aunt uh, kicks her and... Uh, uh, hits her and forces the, 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 uh, her niece to go out and beg on the city streets. And on one occasion, the aunt is called in and uh, rebuked, suspended from the Lord's Supper, uh, and then the little girl is put in the city hospital for safekeeping. Uh, probably the most graphic, the most shocking case of church discipline that I encountered, again, occurs a few years after Calvin's death, in one of the little villages outside of Geneva, the little village known as Malval. Uh, and uh, the plague has come to uh, this region, uh, and one of the young women in the village uh, had contracted 
uh, the pest, uh, even, even as she was pregnant, uh, awaiting the birth of her, of her child. And out of fear, her mother and her sister and her brother abandon her, leave her alone in the house uh, as she gives birth to an, uh, an infant, uh, even as she's dying of the plague, screaming for help, and yet no neighbors, no families are there to help her. And ultimately, this young woman dies along with uh, the, newly, the newborn child. And when the consistory hears about this, the consistory is horrified. And again, after calling in multiple witnesses and after interviewing the mother uh, of the deceased girl and her siblings, uh, the consistory will, first of all, suspend each of them from the Lord's Supper for a time, demanding that they repent of their lack of care for their sister or daughter. But then also the ministers will send a message to the city magistrate saying, we must do, do something to assure that this never happens again. So in that case, the consistory is functioning as kind of the conscience of the city, uh, assuring that, uh, uh, that the poor and, and the vulnerable and the weak and the sick are being cared for. Uh, if I could give one more example, uh, case after case after case, uh, where the consistory enters into broken relationships. It may be um, estrangement between a husband and a wife, or perhaps bad blood between a mother-in-law and a, and a son-in-law. Uh, and I was so very impressed at the extent to which the ministers, week after week, sometimes weeks on end, uh, attempted to, to bring about healing in, in broken relationships so that those families could be pacified, their households could be pacified, but also so that uh, these family members could live as Christians and take the Lord's Supper with good and ready conscience, being able to celebrate the forgiveness of Christ. You know, one of the things that comes to my mind as, as you were recounting some of those stories is how often pastors like myself think as, as we're going through those types of issues on a daily and weekly basis. Gosh, I'd love to get these issues done with so I can start being a pastor. <laughs> and we miss the point that that, that is being uh, the pastor. Yeah. That is being the pastor. Yeah, All that's, this stuff is distracting me from the pastorate. Right, right, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was a, such a, 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 a powerful lesson from my study. Uh, we do pastoral care as we preach. We do pastoral care uh, as we celebrate the sacraments with God's people. Uh, as we attend to catechesis, but we also we also provide pastoral care uh, as we uh, do the work of church discipline, as difficult as that is. Uh, God calls ministers of the gospel to be engaged in life-on-life, face-to-face, uh, uh, real-life encounters. Uh, and church discipline in Geneva was one of the ways in which the ministers uh, attended to people at their point of deepest spiritual need. Uh, and attempted to bring the forgiveness of Christ, the hope of Christ, uh, and reconciliation of Christ into relationships. Yeah. yeah, all of that was not an invention of the 20th century pastoral ministry, was it? It yeah. certainly wasn't. Yeah. Uh, one other thought, too. I think sometimes it's easy for us in the 21st century to um, look back uh, to the past and perhaps to the Reformation era and imagine that pastoral life was a little bit easier back then because after all you know most of the people believed and most of the people were earnest Christians and my study of the consistory minutes was a pretty forceful reminder that pastoral work has always been difficult it's difficult today it was difficult in the 16th century and yet 
uh, what an enormously high calling uh, to proclaim the love of God and the forgiveness of Christ uh, to uh, God's people. What would you say would be the top lessons that churches and seminaries can take today from Calvin's time in Geneva? The, the very top priorities pouring into young men headed into pastoral ministry. Well, certainly one would be the primacy of the word, that ministers of the gospel proclaim the word of God, whether that be through uh, their pulpit ministry, whether that be through a catechesis, through celebrating the Lord's Supper, visitation, uh, or church discipline. Uh, the Christian ministry is a ministry of the word, and, and God renews his church through uh, the proclamation and application of God's word. That would certainly be one important message. Uh, a second, the importance of collegiality and accountability in pastoral work. Uh, one of the takeaways for me as I studied uh, Calvin's company of pastors is the degree to which these were uh, Christian ministers who were working uh, together in community. Uh, they weren't lone rangers. Uh, they were uh, engaged one with another. They, were, uh, they held one another accountable uh, within the city. Um, they made decisions together. They theologized together through a weekly institution that was known as the congregation. Uh, and to be sure, uh, Calvin's institutions as established in Geneva uh, aren't all re replicable in today's church and today's setting. But I think Calvin understood that uh, uh, certainly, uh, one of our aims in ministry is that we should be uh, working together, uh, learning together, holding one another accountable. Uh, and perhaps a third important lesson, and I've already alluded to this, is the importance of life-on-life -life ministry. Uh, we uh, are, if we're called to pastoral ministry, we're, we're called to care for people and to be engaged uh, in the lives of real people who have real problems. So those are three three thoughts. I want to rewind a little bit to one of the topics you brought up in the in the meetings, ignorance. And I just look at the Christian market today and some of the books that, and it's kind of a, a pet project or pet peeve of mine, but um, you know, the books that are being marketed to the Reformed Church even and how little discernment is in the church when they're reading and it can cause some division in the church, but to, to identify that as a pastoral issue that they were talking about and even targeting, as you were saying, particular families that needed to know more. I mean, we might be able to identify the Trinity, but can we, does everybody in the church know that it's three persons and one being? Right. Because, you know, I've read a book marketed to women that's very popular that said the Trinity was three beings. So yeah. this is a problem in the church. Yeah. Yeah, that is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just interesting going down. Like, I feel like I could have a conversation about each one of those pastoral issues that you were talking about for, for disciplinary Yeah, instructing, instructing the ignorant was, was very instructing much the ignorant. A, a, a stated purpose for the pastoral ministry, wasn't it? It certainly was. And in Calvin's uh, Geneva, there were sermons preached every day of the week. In fact, 33 sermons each week were proclaimed within the city walls. That's a lot of preaching. And again, Calvin didn't do that by himself. He was, had a team of ministers, six to eight ministers, who worked together with him. Uh, the emphasis upon catechesis. 
uh, and one of the, one of the discoveries that I made uh, from my from my study, Calvin wrote a number of uh, catechisms during his lifetime. The most important was his Catechism of 1541-1542, that had 373 questions. Wow. Questions and answers. Uh, however, interestingly enough, it wasn't expected that children would memorize all 373 uh, questions and answers. There were a number of abridgments. Uh, the expectation was that children would memorize uh, these abridged uh, catechisms, one of which was written by Theodore Beza, uh, another by Jean Crespin. Uh, and the, the larger catechism of Calvin would function as a kind of curriculum to be used within Christian households, uh, be taught at the Latin school, and then uh, every Sunday at noon, Geneva's ministers preached from that larger catechism. So students not only memorized a few questions and answers, but there was a, a broader theological program that was woven into both family life and urban life uh, in Geneva. And then one other thought, too. Uh, behind all this is uh, a rigorous program of visitation. Uh, some people think that Richard Baxter invented the idea of parish visitation, but in fact, in Calvin's Geneva, every, uh, every Easter or shortly before Easter, all of the households within the city would be visited by a pastor and an elder. Uh, with an eye toward assuring that children were being uh, catechized, uh, that people within those households uh, were able to give reason for their faith, that's the language of the documents, to make sure that there wasn't conflict or recurring moral failure within those households. So again, this concern that the people of God uh, uh, understand God's Word, be living faithfully in accordance with its precepts, um, and being living at peace with one another. That's really good. And I've been so helped just in this discussion being reminded again because, I, you know, I'm leaving um, in a day or two to, to head back and I've got a list of people I need to see and conversations I need to have. And I'm just reminded again of the weightiness of the work. And I was reminded of that a couple of years ago when I, when I read Calvin's Company of Pastors. Um, the author of which, Scott Manich, has been our guest. And I hope that in this, uh, if, if you're headed into pastoral ministry or already there, to be reminded that uh, the best work and the most important work in pastoral ministry is not uh, something that we've just discovered in the last few years through uh, church growth gurus. It's the things that faithful pastors have been doing for hundreds of years. And um, if you are a pastor or planning to be a pastor, training for the ministry, uh, please get um, a copy of Calvin's Company of Pastors. It will help you. It will sharpen you. And um, we highly recommend it. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for being our guest today. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening in to Mortification of Spin. Uh, please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. And uh, we'll talk to you next time.
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. This week at mortificationofspin.org, we have some copies of a lecture series given by our very own Carl Truman. Head over to win this audio set called The Protestant Reformation and John Calvin, given at the 2013 B.B. Warfield Memorial Lecture Series. And listen next week when the team talks about... One of the things, obviously, that has been haunting the church for quite a while is the revelations of child sexual abuse within the church. You know, I think for a long time, Protestants and evangelicals comforted themselves with the fact that this was largely a Roman Catholic problem. Of course, that's simply nonsense. You don't have to be found not guilty in a court of law to be totally compromised as a church leader on this. For a gospel that is all about repentance, grace, mercy, and forgiveness, why? It just seems like it's so hard. It just shows you how strong sin is to ask for forgiveness. You know, for a leader to say, I regret having done this. That's next time. And in the meantime, head over to mortificationofspin.org to read, comment, and subscribe to the blog and to enter to win the Protestant Reformation and John Calvin. We'll see you next week. Sa- our sound, our sound people, they have to, to synchronize these two recorders, and the way they do it is we have to clap into the mic. Anyway, just one, just one. Okay, let's clap. Okay, this is it now. Ready? That was much more professional. Running like a finely oiled machine as always. Yeah.